0: Today's video is brought to you by Wigan*, a modern-yet-classic-style fairy tale about a dwarf boy who is outcast but adopted by a generous family, and whose life takes rather interesting turns. It's, like most fairy tales, relatively short, and contains a lot of great moral lessons about the value of generosity, the use of one's wits, and the value of perseverance through hard times, and the rewards that can come to those who follow these principles. It's actually a rather charming fairy tale. When I was approached with this, I wasn't sure what to expect, but frankly, the story was one of those that kind of took me by surprise. It was very enchanting. I found it very enjoyable, despite being a relatively short read. And it's a great thing for, you know, a young reader. It's got short chapters, it's got illustrations, and it even has a glossary in the back for some of the words that younger readers might not be familiar with. So, for example, Cooper, most Modern people probably aren't even aware what a cooper is, but it's a barrel maker, and so there's a glossary in the back to help out with that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for a great book for a young reader in your home, or a great Christmas gift for such a person, then I highly recommend *Demi* Wiggin. A link to the Amazon page for the story will be in the description below. Michael Vaughnan, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and it's been a long time since I did a deleted scenes video. Uh, And for those of you who have been around long enough, you know that these are scenes that are in the book that didn't make it into Peter Jackson's movies. And the reason, of course, I picked Peter Jackson's movies is because that's the longest, fullest version of The Lord of the Rings in a movie format. The other video adaptations never, ever completed the entire trilogy. And so the only one that you can really say left out scenes in any given book and be kind of fair, as Peter Jackson's trilogy, and I was thinking about Sam Wise's Temptation by the Ring, and I realized, I have not done a deleted scene video on this, how have I not done this, because this is one of the great scenes in the book that never makes it into Peter, Jackson, Peter Jackson's movie, and that's just positively criminal, because this scene is amazing, and... You can tell it's amazing just by the fact that the Rankin Bass version of this scene is awesome. Like this is one of the best parts of the Rankin Bass Return of the King. It's truly a great it's it's got its issues, which I will touch on. But that scene in the Rankin Bass Return of the King is so well done. It's just beautiful. And the you know the book version is actually extremely brief. It's, you know, maybe a page is taken up by the lead-up and the whole thing, but it's so powerful because of the different things that goes on in it, and it's so complex in the way that it kind of brings together a lot of different aspects of both the ring, Sam's character, moral lessons. Just There's just so much in this scene that it's just, Again, it's criminal that Peter Jackson did not have this. Instead, what we get is this cheapened thing of Sam being, you know, reticent to give the ring back to Frodo for a few seconds, which doesn't happen in the book, and that is Sam's temptation in the movie. And it's like, dude, you just... mm, It's such a thing of beauty, and you just had to leave it out. That's just so bad. So... Here's the thing, if you've not read the book, and you don't know this, and you haven't seen the Rankin-Bass version of The Return of the King, Sam, after he takes the ring off of what he thinks is Frodo's corpse, eventually puts it on to hide from orcs, and then sees the orcs take Frodo and mention the fact that Frodo is actually not dead, and then he tries to follow them into the Tower of Cirith Ungol, doesn't manage to do so, and starts wandering around trying to figure out, you know, what he's going to do. And he crosses, at some point, a threshold after he takes the ring back off. And it's not clear what that threshold is. Is it, like, the midline of the mountain range, or is it just because he's within sight of Mount Doom now? You know, it's not 100% clear exactly why, but he steps into Mordor proper, in a sense, and he begins to really start to feel even more strongly the temptation of the ring and he's thinking about the ring you know the the different options that he has and the book specifically says he thinks about the ring but there's no comfort there only dread and it says that he's he feels almost like he's enlarged and like there's this great misshapen shadow of himself covering you know himself and like he's a big threat on the borders of Mordor. And it's even though he doesn't wear the ring, it's just that he's carrying it around his neck. And that tells you a significant amount about what the power of the ring really is. And of course this will play in later when he goes into Ungol because he will come across some orcs and just be holding the ring. And just in holding the ring, the orcs are going to think he's something way more dangerous than he actually is. So there's something powerful about this ring, just it being there, and this was also kind of played up in the scene where Frodo and Sam and Gollum are beginning their ascent into the pass of Ungol, and the Witch King leads his armies out, and suddenly he senses a power in his valley that's not his own. He ends up not figuring out it's the ring, but he's sensing the ring, and it's, the closer it gets to Mordor, the closer, you know, it gets to Mount Doom particularly, the more powerful and the more dangerous the ring is and tolkien uses a lot of language to describe this he says it's more fell and that's you know a really interesting choice of words it's fell is a very specific and archaic kind of word to describe something with it's not just a you know it's not just dangerous it's like there's something evil and dangerous and you know almost it's really hard to imagine the use of this word with a ring, but that it, it again kind of goes to that tendency that people have to think of the ring as kind of a sentient being unto itself. It's not sentient, but it does things that kind of mirror what a crafty, you know, seductive, and you know, I don't mean seductive in that sense, I mean seductive in the, you know, tricking you into doing something, since, you know, the kind of conniving person that Sauron is, you know, that kind of thing is what the ring does, which makes it seem in some ways sentient. So Sam is feeling all of this, and then it goes into this passage where it says, already thoughts of, you know, taking the ring or filling his mind, and he sees these visions of himself as Samwise the Strong, the hero of the age, and he puts on the ring, and armies flock to his call, and he rides and destroys the tower of Baradur, and then he, at, you know, just at his command, the whole Vale of Gorgoroth, you know, becomes a great garden-bearing fruit. And this is so well done in the Rankin-Bass, and the music that they put to this scene is great, the, you know, the vision of Samwise you know, being this great war leader and they've got this army cheering for him and, you know, calling him Samwise the Strong and all this stuff and, you know, he just does things that are completely nonsensical and eventually he sees this vision of Mordor becoming a great garden. And the music, the way it builds the tension there is just so good. If you haven't seen it, you really have to see it. I'm not showing it here for copyright reasons, because, I mean, I I probably could, but I'm just not going to risk anything, but it's, it's a great, great scene, and the, the main difference here between the Rankin-Bass version and and the book version is, in the book, we get this description of all these things that Sam has going through his mind, and the, the visions he's having, and, you know, the results and all this other stuff and it you know it ends with this line that all he had to do was claim the ring and all of this would be his and then the next paragraph starts with in that hour it was the love of his master for the most part but also his plain common sense his plain hobbit sense that you know saved him and kept him from falling prey to this temptation and it does say that he was tempted you know already the ring was tempting him with, tempting him with visions of all this stuff so, it's not that Sam was not tempted, but the main difference here is there's nothing in the book that actually indicates that he came close to putting it on, whereas in the ring and bass movie, it shows him just about to <laughs> put the ring on, and then he just suddenly stops, and, you know, credit to Roddy McDowell, he does a really good job of acting in this, you know, voice acting Sam in that scene, but... The, the scene is a little bit over the top because of the way they do it because he comes close and then he takes it away and says, no, which is just a little corny, but it's it's one of those things where it's a difference that I can, I can kind of forgive because to do that scene in a way that you could portray it in a movie, you almost have to do that because we have to see these things in Sam's head. That's where these visions are And it's hard to pull that off without some kind of, you know, endpoint that breaks the tension. Whereas in the book, there doesn't seem to be any tension that's broken. It's just that Sam is having all these visions of what he might accomplish and whatnot and just rejecting them. And in fact, it it even says, before it describes all of this stuff, that he realizes he, he has only two choices. One is to claim the ring... Or to, you know, withstand it, even though it's gonna be basically torture. And so, you know, we we get this upfront kind of indication that Sam is he realizes what's going on and he's getting all these visions, but he and he knows it's gonna to be torture to reject it, but he's gonna reject it. But it says that it's the love of his master and his plain hobbit sense. He knows all of this is just a trick. He recognizes if he puts the ring on, it's really just going to bring Sauron's attention right to him, and he's going to be caught. And he also, and, and this is one of the great lines in the entire book, and it's not a line of dialogue, but every now and then, Tolkien just drops you know, some narrative lines in that are just absolutely amazing and crushing in terms of their moral weight. And this is one of them. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. So, I love that line because it shows that a great deal of Sam's hobbit sense comes down to his own humility. He recognizes all of this stuff that's filling my mind is not only just a trick, because that's actually the follow-up line. He starts actually talking to himself. We actually get lines of him dialoguing with himself, saying, anyway, all this stuff is just a trick. If I put the ring on, he'd find me. But before that, we get this line. And so what he's thinking at that moment when we get this, you know, the garden swell into a realm is that is not his proper sphere. Like, he's not a king, he has no right to be a king, he's a humble gardener, right? He's just, that's who he is, that's his kind of purpose in life. And he realizes that it's not for me to command others, it's not for me to have this huge realm, swollen, you know, realm-sized garden for me to have others till, you know, at my whim. All my need and do is the one small garden of a free gardener. And there's so much moral weight to that because so many people, and this is true of politicians left, right, center, it doesn't really matter. This is not a comment about a political party, but politicians as a general rule are always seeking for, whether they admit it or not, power to make other people do other things. And Tolkien here is rejecting almost all of that. Even Aragorn's kingship is a rejection of that, because the one thing that we see Aragorn doing as king has nothing to do with making laws. And if you study the history of Numenor, like in the Unfinished Tales, and what little commentary we get in the Return of the King and stuff like that, the whole idea behind the Numenorean kingship is these laws are ancient and, you know, they're very old custom and tradition. And the king just kind of carries that forward and is kind of a final judge character. That's what he's doing in that scene where he ends up rewarding Baragon for what he did. He finds, you know, proper judgment based on the laws as they exist. He's not just going out there trying to do more stuff to create more laws and find other ways to command people to do what they're supposed to do. That's not what he does. He's the war leader and he's the final judge. That's kind of the the main function he has as the king. And so, Tolkien's whole point here seems to be, and he says this in a letter too, and I think I've brought several of these points together in a earlier video where I talk about Tolkien on politics, I don't remember how much of this i specifically brought in, but in a letter he says, not one man in a million is fit to, you know, rule other people, and especially not those who seek the power to do so. And that seems to be Sam's fundamental insight here, which is, that's not what I'm supposed to do. That's not really what anybody is supposed to do for the most part. Very few people should ever be commanding large numbers of other people. Sometimes you have to. In a war situation, you need a commander, Right. Sam is not in that situation, and he recognizes not only is it foolhardy to think that you could put yourself in that situation by putting on the ring, but also it's not his place. That's not who he is. His need and do is, you know, the thing that is fitted to his station in life, and that's not to say that Tolkien was being classist. It's like, you know, if you're going to do something in life, if you're going to have a job, then do your job well. Accept the rewards that come with that and the burdens that come with that and be content. That's a, you know, a very Tolkienian way of looking at the world. Sam is recognizing here that all these great delusions, it's not just that it's not going to happen. It's also inappropriate. And that's one thing that I love about this scene because Tolkien not only shows forth the power of the ring, and how as it gets closer to Mount Doom, it gets ever more powerful and more tempting, and, you know, you have to wonder, like, the other cool thing about this is, if it's tempting Sam with these visions, and, you know, he has to reject this with some difficulty, it's astonishing to think of the fact that Frodo, in his very weakened state, will manage to take the ring from here all the way to Mount Doom, and not put it on once. Talk about strength of will. So, that's another thing that this scene does, is it sets up how dangerous and how problematic the whole carrying of the ring is, and therefore shows us a lot about Frodo's strength of character and his own willpower. But the main thing that I love about this, like I said, is Sam's recognition that, you know, the the delusions that he's having that are being kind of planted in his mind by the temptation of the ring are just not okay. It's like, I I shouldn't do that. Even if I could do that, I shouldn't do that. That's not what I'm supposed to do. That's wrong. And this is one of those things where Tolkien manages to teach a really profound moral lesson without beating you over the head with it. I mean, it's there. It's not hidden, really. But he's not conking you over the head with, you know, something that's just painfully obvious, like he's preaching at you. It's It's really natural to the story, natural to Sam's character, and it plays so well. It is, in some ways, slightly disappointing that you don't have that really high tension built up and then breaking the tension with him not putting on the ring when he almost does, like in the Rankin-Bass film, but nevertheless, it's still a very well-written passage, and it just really does a lot in in you know just a page or two of text that, again, the fact that Peter Jackson doesn't include this scene is when he includes so many other things that are extraneous, not necessary, or even just made up, you know. And I think it would have been, I think it would have served the movie really well to see this. Because in the movie, we get really very little sense of the temptation of the ring other than, you know, like a Dreamy, like weird hazy state that Frodo goes into, and this happens several times. And like the sound goes kind of muted, and you know, whatever. But we never see anybody specifically have like a vision of what would happen. And this is the one part of the book where we get that. I mean, Galadriel kind of describes her own vision of what might happen, but that's her describing to another person, so it, it's kind of third hand, right? We don't actually get to see it. Whereas here, Sam is the only narrator and he is the one witnessing it. And so we get a, you know, a hand account of this is the thing going through my head right now. And it would be just so cool if Peter Jackson had also done something like what Rankin Bass had done and it really put something into that. It wouldn't have taken long. I mean, a couple minutes. It's, it's not hard. Uh, but unfortunately we did not get that, so you have to get it from either Rankin Bass or reading the book, either of which is great. So that's my deleted scene for today. Um, I'll probably be covering some more deleted scenes in the future, although I don't have any specifically in mind, Uh, but I know there's other stuff that I have still not covered for that series, so keep an eye out in the future. If uh, you Would like to learn more about scenes that didn't make it into the movies if you're not particularly a bookworm of the Lord of the Rings. Because I know there's a lot of people out there like that. So, if you did enjoy this video, please give it a like, share it around. Make sure you subscribe to catch all the future content. Hit that bell icon if you're on YouTube to make sure you don't miss any notifications. And, of course, you could find me on other platforms and most podcatchers. You can also catch me giving out Tolkien-related trivia questions over on Twitter and I've got a Discord channel, and you can support me over at Patreon or Utreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends, PA Brew News, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Ole Gregg.